It's wonderful to be back in God's Word with you from here. Excited about our opportunity this morning. We are in Zechariah at the end of chapter 1, verses 18 to 21. I invite you to open up your Bible. And let's read today's passage. This is the second vision of the prophet Zechariah. Read from verse 18 of chapter 1. Then I lifted up my eyes and saw, and behold, there were four horns. So I said to the angel who was speaking with me, what are these? And he said to me, these are the horns which have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. Then Yahweh showed me four craftsmen. And I said, what are these coming to do? And he said, these are the horns which have scattered Judah so that no man lifts up his head. But these craftsmen have come to cause them to tremble, to throw down the horns of the nations who have lifted up their horns against the land of Judah in order to scatter it. Our passage title this morning is God Breaks Many to Build One. God Breaks Many to Build One. And built into the title is a little bit of the punchline. It offers you a bit of the solution to a prophecy that has caused problems for interpreters going back over 2,000 years. And I want you to see today how this prophecy not only makes sense in light of other prophecies, but it also makes sense in historical perspective. There are many who will be broken, which we will observe together, but in the end, only one will be built up and will never be broken. Well, if a statement like that sounds a little cryptic because you're wondering how we get there, then you're in good company. I think we don't necessarily come to a text like this and immediately understand all the, the, the straight line of evidence that is presented to us, let alone all the subtleties let alone all the historical implications. So I imagine you're coming to this text like I did when I studied it with a lot of questions. So the order of our study today is really to ask some basic questions of this very deep prophecy and work through the answers to our questions step by step. So as I begin this study, we'll begin where I began my uh, study at home, and these are the questions that I asked. These are investigative questions, those journalistic questions that you want to ask just to gather baseline information about a context that you're approaching. And we can apply that to some of these more mysterious passages of Scripture and gain a lot, even just at a basic level of observation. So the questions are the who, what, when, where, how and why. And I've set that order so it guides us through the order of our study today. So the who question is, when we talk about this second vision that we just read, who are the characters that are involved? The what question is, what do these characters do? And what happens in the vision itself? The when question is, when do the events of this vision take place? These are all questions that we find ourselves asking right? The next is where? Where are the characters located? What do we need to know about the location of this vision? And how will the vision be fulfilled? But of course, there is the why. Oftentimes, the why comes before the how, but we'll end with hopefully a satisfying answer to the why. And the why question is, why is the vision given? Why does it follow the first vision? Why is this the second out of eight visions that Zechariah gives. 
And ultimately, the big why question is, why is this important? When we ask that question, why is it important, we're asking, why is this vision important to the original audience? Why is it important to Zechariah, and why must he transfer that import to his people that are most affected by this? But, of course, God has given us this timeless vision so that we would have, in his timeless word, an application for today. So we have to ask the question for us, why is this second vision of Zechariah important for us today? That's what we want to know. Well, even with basic observation of the text, we're going to get some of the preliminary answers that we need, and those are going to help us then dive a little bit deeper. So we certainly want you to take this type of a framework, and where you're seeing a passage of Scripture that doesn't seem readily apparent, start working through it at this basic level of observation. And we'll do some of that right now. So we're on the first question, who are the characters involved? Well, there are a few characters that I want to bring to your attention, and they're just right there in the text. You don't have to do any deep dives to understand this. The first one is the most important of all, and it's Yahweh himself. It's Yahweh. Now, he doesn't show up in the first verse of this second vision, but we read about him in verse 20. And he is the one that gives the prophetic vision to Zechariah, which you would expect. Verse 20 says, then Yahweh showed Zechariah. And so we understand that there's no doubt that what he shows him in the second part of the vision, he's the one that has shown the first part of the vision. So Yahweh is the first character of this vision. What's the second one? The most obvious next one is Zechariah himself. He's the prophet. And in verse 18, he's the one who lifts his eye to see Yahweh's vision. Next is the interpreting angel, the interpreting angel. And we're going to call him that. Now, he first appears in verse 9, and so we saw him last week. And he explains uh, to the prophet that the Son of Man, who is recognized as the pre-incarnate Christ, is riding on a red horse. You'll remember that from our study. He's ready to claim victory for Israel in the end. So this interpreting angel shows up in the second vision. He'll also show up in chapter 4, he'll show up in chapter 5, and the interpreting angel will even show up to give guidance for what Zechariah is seeing in chapter 6. So, uh, this is also the angel who has shown up elsewhere for other otherwise very apocalyptic, very colorful, and very overall mysterious visions elsewhere. You read about this angel in Ezekiel chapter 40, verse 3. You read about him in Daniel 7, verse 16. Ezekiel 43 and Daniel 7, 16, and you can understand why. These are expressive images that need some clarification, and God doesn't want those prophets to walk away without having as clear an understanding as they can have in accommodated language, language that they can understand, images that mean something literal that they can then bring to their people for edification uh, based on actual truth. Okay, who's the fourth character that we see in here? Well, it's the fourth characters. It's the four horns. You read about those in verse 19. These horns are described in this passage as having so much power that they, quote, scatter Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. Now, in verse 21, they're called the horns of the nation. So we're connecting the horns and the horns of the nation as the same uh, characters here. In verse 21 also, we learn that when the nations 
uh, when these nations, the horns of the nations, lifted up their horns against the land of Judah, it says, they did so for what purpose? To scatter the people, which is to say to cause them absolute desperation through exile. And what we read about that desperation is right there in verse 21. They, with their power, make it so that no man lifts up his head. These are bad dudes. These are like the worst of the bad dudes that you could find. They send their captives not just into exile, but into hopelessness, absolute despair, total dejection. But we have a fifth set of characters, and that comes in verses 20 and 21. These are the four craftsmen, four craftsmen right there. And what have they done? They are described as coming to, quote, throw down the horns of the nations. And what do we see with these craftsmen? Well, we first need to understand who a craftsman is. A craftsman is an artisan. A craftsman is someone who works with hammers, works with fashioning tools, one who can build up, but one who has everything in his command to break down. We'll talk about them at a deeper level in just a moment, but this is what we are to understand of these four craftsmen. Here, the work of these craftsmen focuses specifically on what object? On the four horns. So we can already start to apply the imagery of what these artisans would do now on those powerful nations. Now, verse 21 says that the work that they do against the horns is so swift, so severe, that they will cause these horns of the nations to tremble with extreme worry, with angst, because it's actually the craftsmen that have the power to, as it says in the passage, throw down the horns. Pretty incredible. We're starting to already associate this, this uh, what would seem to be this cosmic vision of a, a, a land battle waged over time between those who come to cause depression and angst, but then find they're the ones overthrown by even greater powers, and they're the ones dejected and cast down. Now, there's a sixth character here, a sixth and final, and it's God's people Israel. It's God's people Israel. We need to recognize them here. This is a vision for them. So look at verse 19. We're given this fullest description of God's people, how? As Judah, as Israel, and Jerusalem. And then verse 21 just references Judah. Now, we understand that's the fullest description of all the people. Uh, divided kingdom, uh, uh, the, the, the holy city, and yet everyone is central in this vision. This is one people, the people of God. Now, a question that remains is, is there implied a 6B? Is it the church? Are we involved in this as the people of God? And that's the question. The redeemed from the nations, the redeemed that we see in the church age moving on into tribulation. And we ask ourselves if we are factored into this prophecy as God's people as well. So we'll have to see how that plays out. But right now, we're just understanding the who. All right, now what we can do is get to the next question, which is the what. What do the characters do? What happens in this vision? Well, in verse 18, 
You see immediately that the prophet has an action of his own. Zechariah lifts up his eyes, and what does he do? He sees this vision of the four horns. There's an action there. Go to verse 19. What happens next? Zechariah immediately asks, what is the significance of what he's seeing? He asks, what are these? Right? And he asks that to the interpreting angel. And so, verse 19 the interpreting angel gives his explanation. These are some of the actions, some of the events within the vision itself, especially just from Zechariah's perspective as he's observing everything. So in the scene, this is what happens. And you see this just from basic observation, right? So not too hard to just track along with this passage. Now, verse 20, Yahweh adds another component to the vision, and that's those four craftsmen. So we have the development of the vision itself in that next stage with those four craftsmen that are coming after the horns. And then you get to verse 21, and the prophet seems to recognize that they're craftsmen. He doesn't ask, uh, who are they? What's their identity? He doesn't really even ask what their function is as craftsmen. He wants to know their function in this vision. So that's where he's asking specifically, what are they coming to do? What is their function in this scene regarding the horn? So then we could say that a a sixth and final element of what the characters do is the response of the interpreting angel. What does he do? He clarifies that the craftsmen are not some random image, not just an apocalyptic image uh, simply to beautify the scene, not something so spiritual that it has no earthly ramifications or, or anything to, to hang on literally, but uh, he says that these craftsmen are a direct response to the horns, and what a response they are. So look at the language. The craftsmen have come to cause them to tremble, to throw down the horns of the nations. The craftsmen are going to bring the just desserts for Israel's foes, and that's a powerful vision that Israel needs, and that comes just at the right time. But we can speed right along here, and we can go right into the when question. The when question. When do the events take place? When do these events take place? And this is where the interpretive challenges can come in. From Zechariah's vantage point, is the vision a picture of history, history before him, political movements that have already occurred in time? Or is this a picture of history unfolding from the past at his time during his post-exilic years, during his post-exilic period? Or are we looking at a future that's far off, some future history? This is where we start to dig in. Well, the, the sure answer here, and the quickest of all of them, is yes. It's past, present, and future. We're looking at a vision that depicts and encompasses past world events, present world events to Zechariah, and future events that have not yet unfolded thousands of years later. And there's one major clue in the passage that helps us to really understand that Yahweh wants Zechariah to see this extended time frame. What is that clue? It's the word horns in verse 18. It's horns. Everything is central around this idea. This is the major clue, the horns in verse 18. The image of the four horns 
takes Zechariah back to biblical references. And he would be familiar with Scripture already, and that familiarity was critical in order to understand the meaning of the prophecy. Well, all Israel is familiar with horn imagery. It's a symbol of effective power. These horns are a symbol of effective power. It's not hard to understand from Scripture itself. King David in Psalm 18.2 calls Yahweh my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. Horn. When Hannah prays in 1 Samuel 2.10, she prays with eyes of faith in Messiah, one that she still has not seen in the flesh, but she proclaims that Yahweh will give strength to his king and he will exalt the horn of his anointed, which is Messiah. This is uh, prayed in faith. So horns represent strength, they represent power, and they represent the strength and the power of the one who wears the horns. That's pretty obvious. And it's not hard to understand even from our modern perspective. If you think of horns mounted on a wall, then you think about the animal that they belong to, right? You think of an animal with some level of brute force that when taken down, the, truth, the trophy is the horns. It, it had to be conquered because it, and that's where the sport is. That's where the skill is in taking down this animal with brute force. And so when you see the horns, you think of that. Power is in the horns. And of course, The bigger the horns, the more imposing the beast. But understanding what or who the horns represent, that's been the source of the debate for millennia. Now, throughout the ages, biblical scholars, uh, commentators, they've offered very different interpretations. Most would understand the horns to be nations because they're called the horns of the nations. And that's to say kingdoms. That's to say empires. Nations in that sense of organized power, however organized that might be. But uh, you would consider the horns then in history uh, as these world empires that could be recognized. And so those who consider the horns to be only in past history, maybe passed from our perspective or passed from Zechariah's perspective, they would look at them and specifically um, in around Zechariah's time, they would say, oh, he should understand what these horns are, the Assyrians. Right? Haven't we studied them? The Babylonians, we sure have studied them, and the downfall of both. The Medes and the Persians, those might be the four horns that are represented here historically. And that view hinges on one other word in verse 19, and you see it right there. It's the word scattered. You see the word scattered in the past tense. Notice in verse 19, the interpreting angel, that's what he says. He indicates that these are the horns which have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. So those are the superpowers that we know from Scripture. They've driven God's people from the land of Israel into exile. They have scattered them past tense. That's how we recognize them. Now, as to the term scattering, why we would assume that that is a reference to exile, that goes all the way back to Leviticus 26. Leviticus 26.33, Yahweh threatens Israel through Moses with these words. You, however, I will scatter among the nations and will draw out a sword after you as your land becomes desolate and your cities become waste. So future history that is predicted that actually becomes true in time. And Judah certainly experienced the fulfillment of that threat at the hand of who? The Babylonians, particularly, talking about the scattering, which was an exile of a 70-year time frame. That 70-year capa- uh, captivity 
represents that scattering. But that's just one of the four. Now, uh, as you go forward in time, biblical commentators from among the church fathers now in the church age, those first centuries of the church, if we think of Jerome, a, a really important Bible translator in the fourth century, uh, he understood the Hebrew use of this past tense scattered in verse 19 could stretch into future history, just looking at the grammar itself and looking how it can be used in prophecies uh, in the Hebrew. So that this use of the past tense doesn't have to be something that's already been accomplished, but it means something that is going to happen in the future that's so secure that it's represented as if it's already happened. And certainly in the mind's eye of our eternal God, it had. So if this is a prophetic vision about the future, then the empires in view could be a mix of world powers from before Zechariah's day, and that could be Babylon, it could be those during and after this combined Medo-Persian empire, it could be that which he will not see, Greece, and later Rome. So this seems to be a bit more of the look that we want to have as we talk about these four horns in historical perspective. We would see Babylon, a combined Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. And I should mention that other scholars, perhaps in an attempt to treat the prophecy with the least possible speculation, they just completely punt. They're just not going to take any position. And uh, one commentator I wrote uh, or read uh, just plainly states that the horns are, quote, um, dogmatic confidence is not justified. Just punts. Don't, don't really read into it. Uh, the trouble with that is then we can just kind of spiritualize it away and consider, ah, this all just points to the love of Christ for his church or something like that. But we're actually dealing with a prophecy that Yahweh has given at a particular point in time because we are to learn something literal, even if it's in imagery that is perhaps out of reach from us to a degree. So how do we resolve that question in front of us, which is when do the events of this vision take place? Well, uh, we have our idea, but what is Zechariah's idea? What would he have come to understand? Well, to get our answer, we need to go where Zechariah would go to get his interpretation. And he would go to a prophecy in Scripture that already has the imagery of horns. Makes sense, right? If he's going to open up his Bible and look for where he's going to find it, he's going to do a keyword search, and he's going to find horn imagery. And when he finds that, he's going to read it really well and see where the points of comparison are. So among the Old Testament prophets, there's only one other book that has horns as part of actually two visions. Do you know who that is? Daniel. It's Daniel. And specifically, it's Daniel chapter 7 and chapter 8. Now, what I want to put up here is a little comparison chart. Uh, there's a lot of verse references. Don't feel you need to write any of this down if you don't want to. But I just want to make a little comparison between the visions of Zechariah and two visions of Daniel that also use this horn imagery. So let me read through this a little bit. Uh, a couple of things preliminarily to say are those first two lines. It's interesting that both Zechariah and one of the visions of Daniel in chapter 7 uh, both occur at night. These are night visions. Uh, that's an interesting comparison. Uh, another interesting comparison is that they both use interpreting angels to try and get at the heart of this, which is not hard to understand given that prophetic uh, terminology and uh, the types of um, 
apocalyptic imagery requires Yahweh to actually give some literal sense. So uh, the interpreting angel we see here, uh, we see it in the first vision, we'll see it in chapters 4, 5, and 6, but um, the angel uh, Gabriel seems to be an interpreting angel in chapter 8 of Daniel, but in chapter 7, it may very likely be the same interpreting angel. That's uh, how we seem to read it. Now, something else then, this is where the horns imagery comes in. In our passage, the four horns are throughout our verses. But it's when you get to Daniel then that you see in chapters 7 and 8 that these are horns of specific beasts. I could say horns of animals, but of the four, three are decidedly animals, but the fourth one is just a strange beast. And it has those horns that represent this power and that strength. So here you have four animals or beasts in chapter 7. In chapter 8, you also have horns distinctly as uh, their representation, not attached to animals, but you, you make that recognition there, and you have that also in chapter 7 and 8. But then further on in Daniel uh, chapter 7, you see one little horn emerge, and that then grows up and becomes this dominant world power in this vision. So this is a little bit of how we see this comparison between Zechariah and Daniel, and that would not have been lost on Zechariah. He would have known where to look and what to look for. And then when he sees it, it's giving clarity that he can then bring back to his people and that we can then uh, start to understand even for our terms today. So as Zechariah reflects on Daniel's vision, he understands both past history and future history are being viewed from God's mind's eye. And these superpowers then are none other than those that are revealed in Daniel to be Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. Now, that fourth horn or that fourth beast, which is a bit different than an animal, uh, when we look at Zechariah and then we look at other places, we see that it's a modified future Rome that is in view. It's a Roman empire that, that resurges. It's reestablished on the world scene, and that is in the future. And then that modified Rome will be reigned by that little horn that emerges and then takes over everything. And that scripture will give clarity to as the Antichrist. So this is how Daniel would have been read by Zechariah although the terms are similar but yet slightly different in Zechariah's vision from Yahweh. So the four horns in Zechariah represent these four superpowers. And not all of them have made their mark on the world stage at his time. And there is that horn that is waiting to rise up that is going to try and do what? Cause Israel to scatter. That will happen in the future, and that is that reconstituted Roman Empire. Now, as you read in uh, the New Testament, uh, you get to 1 Peter 5.13, and you understand that at the time of the apostles, even Peter says that Rome is called Babylon. Interesting to see that characteristic of yet an older kingdom. So Rome has these wicked characteristics, and that then gets brought into the book of Revelation. And you see this 
a New Testament idea of Rome being described as this new Babylon in Revelation chapters 14 through 18. From Revelation 14 to 18, you get this real sense that this reconstituted empire is Rome, and yet it is so similar to the way Babylon was in the past, but with its new entanglements and its new politics on now not a local level as a superpower, but a world order, then it is characterized as the new Babylon. So Zechariah understands the horns. And so I think we can have clarity on these horns as we move through the book and try and understand how prophecy is in its stages fulfilled as God accomplishes his plan in history. But we need to hold out our um, understanding further from where we have uh, a a clear sense of fulfillment because there is that little horn and there is that reconstituted Rome. And we have not seen that yet. Although I happen to believe we're getting close. Okay. Now, those nations use their effective strength for what purpose? Ultimately, the vision says it all. It's to try and bring Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem to nothing. Now, we can answer another major question and dig even deeper. So let me give you our investigative questions. We are now at where? Where are the characters located? And perhaps we've already gotten a sense of that just thinking through who the horns are. But if you look back at verse 18, and we just try and focus in on the location of this scene and the vision itself, Let's just go back to our basics and just kind of rewash through the passage. So if you go back to verse 18, you see Zechariah, he's, he might be looking down, he might be looking ahead, but he seems lost in thought because of what he has just experienced in this first vision. And what he's been told in verse 17 is already enough to take all of his reflection, all of his meditation. Verse 17, look at that before our next vision, and it says, Thus says Yahweh of hosts, my cities will again overflow with good, and Yahweh will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. But then in verse 18, Zechariah lifted up his eyes and saw this vision of the horns. So there is this, in real time for him, a contemplation that leads now to the next development. Now, hold that in your minds because that's going to play into our later question of why. So in verse 18, he looks up. What does he see? He sees really the the camp of battle. He sees that, that theater of war. And what is it? It's the horns attacking God's people. Of course, these horns do other things in history. They have other battlefields and all of that. But from the perspective of the vision that Yahweh wants to have in that spiritual sense intersecting with actual terrestrial play, what do we find? We find that these horns make God's people the center of their attack. The the focus here is to drive the people out of their land so the people come into the land. That also matches up with history. Now, there's from the perspective of this vision, there's nowhere in Israel's territory that the foes aren't invading. Whether you look at Israel, if you look at Judah, you look at the holy city of Jerusalem, it's all under siege by these world powers. But then, of course, Yahweh develops the prophecy further, and he reveals that where the horns are, 
those enemies of Israel that are actively attacking it, it's also there that the foes of the foes are marching in. The foes of the foes are marching in to destroy the foes of Israel. Hold that in your minds too as you move to verse 20. And in come the four craftsmen. In come these four craftsmen. And they are coming to defeat the horns of the nation. So the battles that ensue between the craftsmen and these super-powered horns, they have the land of Judah square in their sights. And they are all through this land. This is just the battlefield for centuries, for millennia. It's an amazing amount of hate against God's people. Now, let's go right to the how question. This how question is going to give us more insight about the where question. It's going to fill in a little bit of gaps about where Israel's foes and the foes of the foes these craftsmen come from. And we can look now to this question, how will the vision be fulfilled? We just want to know a little bit more. Well, the vision isn't just that Israel is going to suffer under domination of her enemies. The vision is that Yahweh is going to send even greater powers, we understand this, greater than the horns, to deliver Israel from her enemies by destroying Israel's enemies. And in the end, God's people will be saved. And so the imagery of the four craftsmen is, it's the how. How will this vision actually result in something good? Otherwise, we're just stuck with horn after horn after horn after horn. What we need is the final attack. We need to know that God's people are going to be safe. We need to remember that Zechariah, who is called Yahweh remembers, has not forgotten his people. We need the how. And if we don't have that, then we would say, what's the point? Why would this be important to us? A history lesson? Really? No. So the imagery of the craftsman is what God uses to show Zechariah how he's going to accomplish salvation for his people. And this you see from basic observation, but we can press a little deeper. So notice in verse 21, Zechariah does, does not ask the interpreting angel to identify what the craftsmen are. He wants to know what they're coming to do. We've addressed that a little bit. And just think of what craftsmen do. They make crafts, not Sunday school level crafts. My children do that, and they fall apart uh, on the, the walk home through the parking lot to get to our car. But they make all manner of uh, artistic elements. Think, uh, think big. Think of sculptures. Think of structures. Think of uh, important um, uh, habitations. Think of what uh, a true artist could accomplish when he's at the height of his skill and fully funded. They're using precious metals. They're using stones. With their skill, then, they are charged to accomplish what common, ordinary folk can't build. They're charged to do what normal folks like you and me wouldn't even be able to conceive of. They're incredibly powerful in intellect and strategy. And with their tools, they can accomplish amazingly powerful things. So what craftsmen build requires heavy exertion, using all manner of tools to do what? 
they can break down in the same way that they build up, thinking of a, a rock that turns, a large stone that turns into a statue, or all the trees that need to be felled in order to construct. You have bludgeoning, you have chipping away, you have flattening, you have breaking, you have molding, you have patching, you have constructing, you have inserting. These are powerful ideas that lie in the hands of powerful craftsmen. And history bears out that these great superpowers were destroyed by even greater superpowers that were these craftsmen. Take a look at just a very simple alignment going off of this idea that we have, uh, or we're trying to establish here, that the first horn, if we take that to be Babylon, we see that he is overthrown by a craftsman. And that craftsman then would be that combined Medo-Persian empire. So take a look at how history plays out. Babylon is this first horn. It's destroyed by Medo-Persia, who acts as the first craftsman. But now history shows us something else that's very interesting. It's that first craftsman at this point of history that, that Zechariah is, is living into in just a little bit. That first craftsman is going to become the second horn. Notice the overlap here. Let me explain. At the time that Zechariah receives this prophecy, Medo-Persia is this combined empire. It's in control of the land. And at his point in history, this is ultimately a helpful thing because Israel is allowed by royal decree to do what? To rebuild the temple. So they're at this work under this Persian help and um, notwithstanding its problems, this royal decree allows them to move forward in um, effectively a state of rest. This then becomes the motive for Haggai saying, let's not rest too much. Now, as time passes, the Medo-Persians also, by royal decree, will plot to annihilate the Jews. And you've read that in scripture. And who is the, the man behind that? Haman in the book of Esther. And it's going to be this total annihilation of the Jews. And so now those that have overthrown Babylon for the sake of Israel become the second horn. Fascinating, isn't it? So Medo-Persia becomes the second horn in Zechariah and Daniel's visions. But Medo-Persia was conquered by their second craftsman, who is Greece. And this Greek amalgam that is this republic, this empire, then ultimately comes to attack Israel and then is itself overthrown. So Greece becomes not just the second craftsman who comes to destroy Medo-Persia, becomes the third horn, but it's overtaken by the Roman Empire. So the Roman Empire then serves as the third craftsman. And as we understand throughout Israel's history, as far as we understand Rome in the, that first century uh, after Christ, and you think of Nero, and you think of Claudius, and you think of any other emperor against the faith, against Messiah, that third craftsman becomes the fourth horn. And that's the one that we were referencing that from 1 Peter 5 and from Revelation 14 to 18, is recognized both at the time of the apostles and on, and then reconstituted later at a time yet to be seen 
is this fourth horn, Rome, otherwise known as the New Babylon. Now, I was wanting to put a big question mark on who is the fourth craftsman, but then I thought, I'll just give it to you. Because you know Daniel, and you understand the importance of this prophecy from where we need to take it next. Now, just keep in mind, we have four horns, and those are historical and future history. But we have four craftsmen, which play into history and become those horns. But we have the fourth one, who is not mentioned in this passage. Just mentioned as the, the, the fourth craftsman. Not mentioned to be Messiah. So you'll notice that Israel's final enemy, if you look now from the view of history, uh, Rome at the time of Zechariah is still a future concept, but then moving in through history, we understand that, yes, Rome has fallen apart, yes, it's been subdivided throughout history, but there was not yet a craftsman that overtook it, not properly. There is no fourth craftsman that we can identify as a national superpower. What we learn from the prophets is that Messiah, who is the Lord Jesus Christ, and we thank God that he is, is the one who is going to overthrow the world's largest and last great human empire. Listen to how Daniel describes Messiah as this ultimate superpower, this ultimate fourth craftsman. He doesn't use that term, but he does show us that this is Messiah. In Daniel 7.14, it's written, And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all the peoples, nations, and men of every tongue might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not be taken away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Amen? This is the Lord Jesus Christ, the fourth craftsman. Now, as the fourth craftsman, you would have thought that in history, shouldn't he have done what all the Jews wanted him to do when he marches through on his donkey? The Davidic king is finally here. Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, but he doesn't overthrow Rome. The craftsman does not do what you would expect a craftsman to do with the superpowers, especially because he is superhuman. He is God and man. Well, this is Rome in the future. And that, that helps us to understand that this fourth horn is still future. It is built off of what is established at that time of Christ, but it will be reconstituted in the end. Rest assured, Messiah will overthrow Rome in the future. The craftsman will crush the fourth horn. And this is a future world order. This is the wicked empire of Antichrist, this new Babylon. And it's going to be entirely crushed under the weight of Messiah's glory and his victory. And that's going to happen at the Battle of Armageddon. You can skip ahead to that in Zechariah 14, verse 3. And you can read about Messiah's victory when he comes to destroy that final horn. In Zechariah 14, 3 he is recognized as Yahweh himself. It says, then Yahweh will go forth and fight against those nations. Now, all these nations that come together as one world superpower, one horn. And where do they land? On that battlefield of Israel. 
a large expanse for a large military campaign, always ever marching against God's people. He says, Yahweh will go forth and fight against those nations as the day when he fights on a day of battle. Skip ahead to Zechariah 14, verse 9, and you get the satisfying conclusion. And Yahweh will be king over all the earth. And in that day, Yahweh will be be the only one and his name one. So we're ready to close out our investigation, aren't we? We're ready to draw it to a close by answering what is so important? And I think you have the answer. Why is this vision so important that it needs to be given, first off, that it needs to be given in this order after vision one comes this vision as vision two? It's not sent down the pike. Why that order? Why is it important to the original readers? And why is it important to us? Why do we need this today? Well, just employ your basic observation again. You notice that this actually is vision two that follows vision one. The connection is logical. It's given. It happens right at that point that Zechariah is meditating on everything he's just read in verse 17. Yahweh has just restated his ancient promise to reclaim his cities bring them abundant good, and give them divine comfort. So as readers of Zechariah, we're with him. We're walking into this vision, lifting our eyes high with this expectation that Yahweh is going to reveal how he's going to accomplish this ultimate good. We need the how. Give it to us. That's where we get our comfort and this sense of good that, that God has in store for his holy people in his holy city of Zion. And that can only be accomplished when the fourth craftsman crushes the fourth horn. And that is Messiah, which we read about again in Zechariah 14, this time verse 4. When he comes, he's going to land on that battlefield. He's going to land on the Mount of Olives so hard that he's going to split it in two. Oh, he's ready. He's coming. The fourth craftsman is coming, and he will decimate that horn. He has all the tools in his possession, and these are divine and perfect tools for a divine and perfect destruction of the enemies of God. Zechariah means Yahweh remembers. He has not forgotten the distress that his holy people have suffered under each of these horns, and that's where we come into this. We're not replacing the church with Israel. We're not reading back ourselves into original scripture. But what we are doing is recognizing that we are under still an oppressive world regime run by the God of the air, the spirit of the power of the air, Ephesians 2 says, who is even now at work in the sons of disobedience. And it's only going to get worse. And as it gets worse, it's going to consolidate. And the evil will not just be political evil or just some social evils. It will be world evil that unites all false religions and everything ultimately under the power of a false Messiah, a false Yahweh. Where? In Israel. 
but he has not forgotten our angst in this evil and corrupt generation today. And that is where we need to land on answering, why is this important for us? It's everything. It's what you need. It is what you need. Here's a final slide. Let me offer some thoughts as you consider the message of this second vision and you apply it to your life. We need to remember these truths about the God who remembers his people. We need to remember because God remembers. What do we remember? We remember that God is patient. God is sovereign. He is good. He's jealous. He is just. And he's our father. What I want to do is trace out these ideas from the bottom up. Let me just give you some concluding thoughts. Let's work our way backwards. Because he is our father, he will lovingly protect us just as he will lovingly protect his chosen people, Israel. No one, no horn, no world power can snatch us out of the Father's hand. Now, because he is our Father, he is also just. And because he is just, he alone, in his glory and in the weight of his victory, he will crush Israel's enemies, which in the church age is a shared enemy because of Satan at the helm. Satan, who controls the world empire even now and will consolidate it later, this modified Roman empire, in all immorality and adultery and sorcery, he will be crushed because God is just. God is just. He is also jealous. God is jealous to be the only God, to be the only Father, the only hope that we have, the one that we, like Zechariah, need to lift our eyes up to see. And because God is jealous, he alone will move heaven and earth to establish his unshakable kingdom. You remember that from Haggai chapter 2? You remember that from Hebrews chapter 12? This unshakable kingdom is this great mountain that will fill the earth, Daniel says. And he's going to do all of this by the power of that fourth craftsman, Messiah, who is the rock, 2 Corinthians 10, who is Christ, the Son of God and the Son of Man. Now, in his jealousy, he is also good. He is also good. He gives good gifts to his children. He promises an inheritance to Israel in the land. And he promises spiritual and material blessing at that proper time to all who love him. Romans 8.32 says, He who indeed did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for all of us, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? But we need to wait for those things. Now the question is, how can God promise good to us and really mean it when we're in times of mounting evil? These are times of extraordinary trial in our world, in our lives, in our history. But don't forget, he's not only good, he is also sovereign. He's sovereign. Because he's sovereign, he holds all things in perfect balance. We don't know how to balance things. We don't know how to look at the future and live in that hope today. We really don't. We don't know how to even rest humbly in the face of all the victories from the past. We're 
unable to balance the scales. But Psalm 2 asks this question, and it's Yahweh asking, why do the nations rage? Why do the peoples meditate on a vain thing? After all, and he goes on later, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord mocks them. Our king is going to have the last laugh on that last day. And that's the day when his anointed one, Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, the fourth craftsman, comes to break the nations with his rod of iron. Yet for now, what we need is what Israel needed back in Zechariah's day. We need our own reminder that the God who remembers is also patient. He is patient. He doesn't look at time the way we do. For him, a thousand years is like a day. And there may be a long history of horns in Israel's past, present, and future, and in the life of the global church today. But there have always been craftsmen, and with fighting their foes, they have provided some temporary rest to Israel over time. And in fact, the church is even growing now. And yet, when the fourth horn pours out with fever pitch, all of its heat, and Israel feels that it's going to melt under the strain of those days that Daniel calls the times of trouble for Jacob. It's then that Judah, Israel, Jerusalem, and all the people, all Gentile believers too, are going to look up and see what Zechariah sees in this vision, the fourth craftsman descend from heaven, the son of man who's going to crush his enemies under his feet. And Zechariah says, like grapes in the winepress of God's wrath and rule the world in brilliant light. So won't you look up today? Won't you lift up your eyes with Zechariah and ask how he will do it and then rest in the comfort of knowing that he will? It's God who lifts up your heads. 1 Peter 5, verses 4 and 6 say this, And when the chief shepherd arrives, appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Verse 6, Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Let's pray. Dear Lord, please send your fourth craftsman quickly. Please destroy all that challenges your glory. But remind us that in the midst of great turmoil, great tension that we face, you have the scales perfectly weighed. You have the time frame perfectly ticking. And you will do all things with your patience because you are sovereign, you are good, you are jealous for your name, you are righteous in your decisions, and you are our Father. May we as your children rest in this comfort while we wait for the future comfort and good that will come to Israel and to all who believe in their God. Through your Son, King Jesus, our Messiah, we pray. Amen.